Do you smell that? It's the smell of New York, baby. That's right, the smell of gas, garbage, and dreams. You've lived here all your life. You know this city like a book, or maybe like a letter that you've studied over and over again and traced word for word until the jig is up. This is Based, Biased, or BS. Hello. And welcome to the podcast where two best friends tell one true story. My name is Zach. And I'm Maddie. And this is Based, Biased, or BS. Baby. I just had to throw it in there because I, it just... It feels good sometimes. Yeah. Not to jump into the topic too quickly. Okay. But I, growing up, I think I've shared this with you, have wanted or wanted to be an author yes like since i was a child yeah you've (laughs) shared that fact and i have on occasion written a physical letter to authors to authors yeah multiple i think just two that i can remember like being like i can't wait to be like you when i grow up or (laughs) (laughs) can you help i don't really remember out with the connection or (laughs) Honestly, that was probably the goal. I don't super know what what the letter was about, but I do remember getting letters back. They felt special, but looking back, they were probably standardized response letters they send out because they were deaf. This movie made me think of them because they were typed out letters kind of on a smaller piece of paper with a signature at the bottom. It made it feel real, though, when I was a little kid. And I was like, oh, my God, J.K. Rowling responded to me. But J.K. Rowling in the early 2000s, not (laughs) (laughs) Not J.K. Rowling now. No. Yeah, that's I love that. Did you have a favorite author growing up or maybe or now even? Um. I always used to say I had a favorite book in elementary school, but I, to tell you the truth, I can't remember what that book was. <laughs> okay. But if I was going to say, a, oh, this is bad, the author that I was obsessed with, like, oh, no, no, Suzanne Collins, the author of The Hunger Games, I would say, is probably one of my favorite authors, oh. and that's probably one of my favorite book series. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. <clears throat> what about you? Yeah, I had a a list. Oh. <laughs> a list. Lemony Snicket was a high one up there yeah. for me. I love those books so much. They scared me. They scared me good. Yeah. Um, but a book I never read was one by Miss Lee Israel. Well, to be <laughs> honest, I didn't read one either, but I listened to one. You listened? I l- yes, because today we are talking about yeah. The 2018? Yes, 2018. Movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me? So, so my watcher, what do you have to say about this movie? <laughs> well, 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 you come here and you want some film facts from me. I want some film facts from you. In your hour of need. 
I've never yeah. seen The Godfather, but I was, that's what I was trying Neither. to emulate. Is it real? Because we could research Maybe. that. Can You Ever Forgive Me premiered at the 2018 Tullarude Film Festival. Tula Doesn't Rude. that sound fancy? Is it Tullarude or Tullarude? T-E-L-L. You. Rude. Tell you rude. Tell you none of the things I said. Got it. <laughs> uh, this biopic, directed by Marielle Heller, features Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, an mm-hmm. out-of-work author, desperate for her next paycheck. Keyword Set in desperate. the early... Desperate. <laughs> yeah. Set in the early 1990s in New York City, the film also features Richard E. Grant in the role of Jack Hawk. Yes, I'm so glad you so, brought him up. Oh, you are. Well, Melissa was nominated. Why did I say Melissa? I don't know. You're in a first My best name friend, base? Melissa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was nominated for Best Actress, and Richard E. Grant was nominated for Best Supporting Actor okay. at the 91st Academy Awards and at the Golden Globes and at the British Academy Film Awards. Oh, they were both nominated yay. at all three of those. Good job, friends. Right? Yeah. But they didn't win. They, oh. they didn't win. Oh. But they were nominated the buddies. Humble, yep. humbled and blessed. Though it wasn't a huge box office hit, oh. it was highly rated with critics and the general audience. Because I, I didn't have, I never heard of this. I you feel didn't? like, mm-hmm. no, I didn't really hear the or see any press about this. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know that I saw a ton of it beforehand, but I do think I had like heard of it. Just never knew. Mm. I had no idea what the topic was when I picked it. So I was confused when I came upon the fact that she was a writer. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> she is. And then one little fun fact for you. This is the first time that, uh, or this is the first time in Melissa McCarthy's acting career that she has portrayed a real life person. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. Yeah. That's interesting. Because I guess she probably, I mean, more lately, or at the beginning of her career, played more like these crazy comedy roles that weren't real people at all. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Love it. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today about Lee Israel. She is uh, something special, as I learned from my main source, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Her own personal memoir. Oh, okay. The memoirs has the same title. Yep. Yep, same title. Got Which it. Which makes me, I don't know that I've had a word for word situation before. Name and like source material being the exact same mm-hmm. thing. So I'm curious <clears throat> to see how it stacks up. Because I haven't seen this movie and I don't really know anything besides what you just said about it. Okay. But Lee Israel, as you know her, was born Lenore Carol Lee. Israel, on December 3rd, 1939. She grew up... 39? Yeah, 1939. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, but damn. <laughs> no <laughs> offense, but damn. Okay, 
So she grew up in Brooklyn, New York, with her mother, Sylvia, her father, Jack, and her brother, Edward. She attended Midwood High School, and then she graduated from Brooklyn College in 1961. There isn't much on her early life, um, and as I was listening to the audiobook, I could kind of start to understand why. So she didn't have very strong familial relationships throughout her life, except, of course, for her cats. Oh, yes. Okay, that resonates with you? <laughs> yes. Okay, no. One in particular. Well, okay, hold that cat. I will. <laughs> the, my cat's still on the back. Yeah. Your cat, keep that cat the in the back. Okay. <laughs> so, no, the, I don't have anything against the cat community. And I say this mm-hmm. with the utmost respect for cats and people who have cats. But Leah was a <laughs> cat lady. Yeah. Not in the sense of so many cats, but just in like, th- she talks about her pet cats like they're her children, which is fine. There are people that do that with their dogs too. But in some ways, the cats really were like her children. So just Keep that in mind as we talk about Miss Lee Israel. Um, spoiler alert, may she rest in peace. She has passed since. I saw that. Yes. Yep. <clears throat> so, Lee is a writer. And so she we claims, can say whatever the fuck we oh, want. We can, I mean, yeah. Even if she was alive, <laughs> we could kidding, also say kidding. whatever we want. Yeah, true. Who cares? Don't sue us. Lee is a writer, and she claims to be quite creative. Not like those office job types she loved to look down on. Mm-hmm. So in 1969, she wrote her first big seller biography on Tallulah Bankhead for G.P. Putnam and Sons. And Tallulah was an actress in both film and theater. And she was even in an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Lifeboat. I don't know anything about those. Wait. But- Lee Israel was in a movie? No, no, no. She wrote about Tallulah Bankhead, and Tallulah was oh. in... This is who that is, if you don't know who. Got it. Tallulah, oh, okay. I didn't know who Tallulah Bankhead was when no, I saw her either. name. That's a big theme in here, is Lee name-dropping these people, and I'm like, question mark? Question yeah. mark? I'm like, why are you obsessed with Fanny Bryce? Get, we'll get to Fanny. <clears throat> okay. So the the book that she wrote on Tallulah was a very big success, and she was able to get a rent-controlled apartment with no view, but still rent-controlled, on the Upper West Side in New York. Yep. Did you see that apartment? Oh, yeah. Did it have no view? Oh, great. We'll get to that. Did you just say Um, smelled it? Yeah. Okay. I can't really remember. They didn't, like, make a point of it not having a view. I don't remember that. Okay. I was just curious. At this point, Lee says, I'd never known anything but up in my career. And she had no experience failing. According to her, the gay men in the community also loved her Tallulah book. So she was on her way up. She was doing good things. She had big groups of people interested in her work. Okay. Did they show anything of that in the movie? Um, The timeline of the movie starts with kind of post. She's kind of a has-been. Got it. Okay. So we'll get there pretty quickly. Um, her second, <laughs> no offense. No her, offense. Full offense. Her second book was on a woman named Dorothy Kilgallen, and it was just called Kilgallen. She was an American crime report, American crime reporter, and game show panelist on the show What's My Line. 
She was also publicly skeptical of the JFK assassination and the following events surrounding (laughs) it. And she wrote several articles about it for some big name newspapers. And then quickly after that, Dorothy was found dead in her apartment. Oh. Yeah. So Lee wrote about this person as well. This Kilgallen person. Knowing me, good thing I didn't pick this to research because... I would have fallen down the JFK conspiracy rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah, you would I have. need to do that one as an episode at some point. Okay, it's yours for sure. You can dibs that. <laughs> <laughs> dibs uh, it. <laughs> so Lee spent about four years researching Dorothy Kilgallen at the New York Public Library for Performing Arts. And while she was doing that, she also ended up giving the library a percentage of her take from Tallulah. So her money. From Tallulah, she oh. says she gave to the library. Not all of it. Because she did all her research there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice of her. So, yeah, that is kind of her. So, Kilgallen. too. Kind and mm-hmm. kind, which is surprising. Yeah. Yeah, it is surprising. And I also guess it could be alleged. Like, the li- I didn't check with the library to see if that was true, but that's what she okay. says. So, Kilgallen but- becomes a New York Times bestseller for one week. And boy, does she like referring to herself as a New York Times bestselling <laughs> author. True. <laughs> and she... She was says making, it multiple times. Yes. Yes. She... Yeah. She talks about how she loves talking about it in the book. It's a ride. Okay. So she was making just enough money to keep her in, as she says, restaurants and taxis, which is pretty expensive in New York. Yeah. But she then brings up, Lee then brings up a series of false starts for projects that never panned out with different people, such as Judy Holiday, Betty Davis, Woody Allen. Yeah, just move on quickly. Okay. And when something would fall through, she would have to return whatever money advance she had been given. So this was a problem because Lee would spend mm. that money in advance on what she says is research um, and then actually compares herself and her job to doctors and lawyers and like agents who get paid even if they fail or misjudge something in my it's opinion. not the same no because <laughs> she's getting paid to be like yeah. here's here's money so we get a book they're right. getting just paid as their job speaking of here's money so we get a book eventually yeah another biography is requested The publishing uh, company Macmillan wants a biography of Estee Lauder, warts and all. Their words, not mine. Okay. So Lee says... I don't really even know who that is. Estee Lauder is like... um, I was gonna actually. Do you, I was gonna ask you if you knew who it was. Oh. Um, it's like I a skincare, kn- makeup, beauty-related product line I, by this person, yeah. Estee Lauder. Uh, I've heard mm-hmm. of like the company, but yeah. I didn't know it was an actual person's name. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh. So they wanted a, a autobiography of her, and Lee says that she quote I accepted the offer, though I didn't give a shit about her warts. I needed the money badly. End quote. It's <laughs> like okay, oh. very blunt about but that. But now I'm thinking. Sorry, I'm still no, caught up good. on that. I'm like, is Maybelline is okay. that a person? I don't think we believe <laughs> Miss Olay. Mi- <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Fenty. <laughs> I 
<laughs> okay, that was a ding dong one. <sighs> okay, I'm sorry. Warts and so, all. She said, I don't all. give a fuck about the yeah, warts. The I warts. want the money. So, McMillan offers her somewhere in what she says is the high five figures to write this book. Um, but okay. along comes Esty herself, who says, wait, I'll give you more. Just leave my warts out of it. Oh. And she didn't. Okay, she didn't actually say that herself. She, her intermediary. But essentially that. From her attorney. Oh, okay. A man named Roy Cohen said it or helped with it. Um, and I mentioned him specifically because SD offers her 60000 which I'm like, if sixty thousand is more, and that's the number, what is high five figures to you, ma'am? Right. Because right. I was thinking high, high I was five, like at least 70, 70, 80, and then you're like, yeah. she offered sixty thousand. Got it. It was probably fifty the first yeah. time. Yeah. So the sixty thousand would be enough for her to pay her back taxes that she owed, as well as an advance that she actually owed Roy Cohen himself, the lawyer cool. for SD. Which I'm like, oh, that's a messy. I'm ugh, that gives me the Roy case. Cohen. I feel like I know that name too. He's like a he's one of the people she loves to name drop, and that she like okay. attempted to write a buy. She was supposed to write something for, and then it fell through. Okay. Um, and he's a lawyer, so that could be something. She didn't accept Esty's offer, and the intermediary basically told her she could name her price. Like, oh, gee, mm. yes, Lee, get that money, however much you want. <laughs> They're saying take it, but. Lee doesn't trust the deal or like it very Why? much since she wasn't the f- first author attempting to write a bio for Estee Lauder. Others had been asked to drop it before, too. So she, like, used that as an excuse to be like, I don't trust it. I'm like, okay, mm. interesting choice you made there, but can't. Weird. So she ends up writing the book in a rush for Macmillan. And Esty is releasing her own biography at the same time. And inside that biography, she was going to reveal that she was Jewish, which apparently at the time was a big deal to reveal you are that or something. Okay. So when the books finally came out, Lee pre-signed When is that? This is This is like 1970s, 80s. So not, not really... Mm. I don't think in the movie quite yet. No. No. But um, when the books finally come out, Lee pre-signs 100 copies of her own book. And when she returns to the store, most of them are still on the shelf where she left them. She says, (laughs) quote, I had made a mistake. Instead of taking a great deal of money from a woman rich as Oprah, I published a bad, unimportant book rushed out in months to beat the other little piggy to market. End quote. Yeah. It got bad reviews. It did not sell well, and she was officially headed downward. So yeah. By the time Estee Lauder Beyond the Magic, an unauthorized biography, was published, that's Lee's book. She's forty six years old, and she doesn't have very much experience at a job or work wise. And the only job she can get is as a personal assistant to a rich woman with children and charities. And it only lasted for four days before she was fired. I could not imagine her as a personal assistant. I know I was reading it and was like, so I was like, what? <laughs> no, Hearing it, it was crazy. 
She then becomes a temp doing legal proofreading around different law firms in New York City at night. And she says she would take a pencil and underline and like carrot what had been changed on these forms. And she earned about $19 an hour, which she says was not a lot. But at that time, $19 an hour is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's the opening scene of the movie. Okay. Is her at this job. Got it. In 1991. Okay. Lee would also supplement that income when she was really low by selling books in her apartment at the Strand Bookstore. It was always the same person who set, who she said never greeted or interacted with her. And one time he refused her books, but she was experiencing um, an arthritis flare-up, so she couldn't carry them back home. So she left them. Um, he called after her saying, hey, get your garbage off my counter. And she says <laughs> she called him some version of, quote, you Pickwickian glacial merchant prick, end quote. And then she shoved all the books on the floor. Oh. The person behind the counter had, like, a younger son-looking employee that she refers to as Little Strand Man. And Little Strand Man <laughs> escorted her out, and she was banned from that store. Whoa. Yeah, the ex- the exact quote you had, get your trash off my counter, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is in the movie. Mm, of her trying to sell her books, and he's like, no, get your garbage off my counter. Yeah, I was, oof. I feel like I've been in the Strand bookstore. I never actually went. I don't remember her ever going back, but that character was a character a little more of the movie. What am I saying? This the bookstore guy was a. I have more back to say story. about the bookstore guy. Okay, yeah, he was in other parts of the movie. So after being kicked out of the Strand, Lee—that's yeah. her last source of disposable income. Lee tries to sell her personal library on the street on what she refers to as like a peddler's row, and like at the same okay. time trying to like hide from neighbors so that they don't see what she's doing. Yeah, you're nodding. Was that a? No. That was not oh. in the movie at all. Oh, no. okay. I was curious. Um, but she was also on and off welfare and getting into drunken situations. Like what, you might ask? Wait, let me tell you. Like what, I could ask? Well, let me tell you. She says she once saw the little strand man leaving his apartment to walk his dog. So she decided to go inside the building and write down the names of his neighbors. Uh-huh. And then she called the Strand f- from the fo- from a payphone on the street where she could see the store, uh-huh. and she pretended to be a neighbor of the little Strand man and told him that there uh-huh. was a fire in the building and that the firemen uh-huh. were not going in for the animals. And she watched him sprint to his jacket and get a taxi, and there was no fire. Just quote one agonized Strand employee beginning a hellish trip uptown. End quote. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure you haven't watched this movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> that exact thing happens, except for one little tiny detail hmm. of the character of Jack Hawk is the one who runs inside and gets the names oh. of all of the other apartment tenants. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. I think it's one of the first nights that they meet. I, okay, that's a relationship I was curious about because in her book, he's not really mentioned until the very end. 
Okay. As like an accomplice. He's like a huge part of the of everything. Yeah. But at the very end of the movie, he goes they're talk they're talking about writing this book and he's like, I don't want to be mentioned. I think I don't think you'll do me justice, whatever. I'm too great of a whatever. And so I think that's what it okay, is. Okay, we're gonna have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But Yeah. So after she does Sorry. this. Just no, to jump ahead, good. reveal no, that. But after she does that, like, prank, qu- quote, mm-hmm. prank, um, she says the rest of the capers were less malicious, which I'm like, you're referring to that as a caper? Caper. <laughs> not to yeah, I mean, you. it's not, <laughs> it's not, I guess it is a prank. I don't know what it is. But, I mean, Emotional horrible. torture. Yeah. She would also make drunken gin-filled calls to former friends that were too busy for her now and say she was Nora Ephron. They would answer and she would yell very gruffly, "Star fucker. Is that one word or two?" and hang up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did that a couple times in the in the movie <laughs> until she got a letter from Ephron's lawyer and two detectives came to her apartment with the cease and desist from for the harassment. <laughs> <laughs> do you so. know how many fucking times you have to prank call someone as the same person to get a, <laughs> to cease, get a and cease and desist? What the hell? Because the way it's phrased in the audiobook too, I keep saying reading, but I was listening. But the way it's phrased yep, is, is it so like, ugh, can you believe they showed up because of me? It's like, yes, bitch, because you were... Yes. You're fucking drunk people. out of your mind and crazy. And then she says she's lucky that her phone got disconnected for non-payment before she could get herself in more trouble. Okay. She did not plan on stopping. Yeah. So at this point in time, Jack is not an active part of her life. Okay. Just so you know. But during this time, Leah is dealing with some pretty annoying flies. Oh, baby. Is so, she... Remember we talked about Lily being a cat lady? Well. Yeah. Her cat at the time, I believe named Jersey. Yes. 21 years old. And that is pretty freaking old for a cat. 21? Yeah. Okay, she said 12. <gasps> Do I have dyslexia? <laughs> no, I think, I think it's 21. It is 21. Okay. Okay. But she did say 12. I wouldn't have mentioned it if it wasn't the exact switch. (laughs) I I was like, (laughs) I was like, are you sure? I am sure. But okay. I also just realized I I could turn more lights on, so I'm not sitting in the literal dark in my room right now. I was going to mention you look like (laughs) Like, I'm watching. Yeah. I'm I'm watching. What is that movie? Paranormal activity. You look like a ghost in a forest. Oh, my God. So much but Yeah, I was feeling creepy, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> I was getting creeped out. <laughs> I won't. Why do they laugh like that? Okay. So, back to the cat. She's 21. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> but the cat was losing it. Lisa said yeah. she barely ate. Her legs were stiff and heavy. Her litter box was always clean. Dot, dot, dot. Literally written down, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but she if had... your litter box is empty, it the poop is somewhere else. It's somewhere. <laughs> but she had no money 
to go to multiple vets or get testing done or anything like that. Lee didn't realize her cat, who spent most of her time under the bed, was going potty under the bed. And Mm -hmm. that was the source of the flies. She didn't smell it. I don't get it. Cat's pee smells. Yeah, but you get accustomed. Fair. Sometimes I come back in my house and I'm like, oh, a dog lives here. Especially, like, she's the only one there. True. And she's there so often, it just... Yeah. She doesn't even smell it. She she tries flypaper, but it wasn't working very well. She says her apartment looked like Little Shop of Horrors. Ugh. What does that mean? Like, with, oh, like, with vines. It was, like, flypaper, but, oh. like, it probably looked like vines and, like, all these butt. Yeah, because they're, like, stringy little pieces. Yeah. And so even though she owed back rent, she finally reaches out to the management and is like, I need an exterminator help. And so they send one out, but they get to her apartment and are like, we're not going in there. That's, no, that's not happening for us. Exactly. That happens. Yeah. Mm. And the whole time you don't know it smells bad either. She's just in there, whatever. And then... She asked for the exterminator from her landlord. They come up and he's like, oh, what's that smell? I'm not, I'm not cleaning this until it's, or I'm not doing this until it's clean in here. And he walks out and then you also learn, oh, it smells like shit in there. I had no idea. Cause and then do you like she start seeing reacting. it differently? Do you like start noticing things? You, yeah. There's like more piles of things that you start seeing. Yeah. You see... Honestly, Jack Hawk, I know I keep saying it, but he's a character in this right now. And he's helping her clean up her apartment. And they look under the bed and it's just cat shit everywhere. Exactly. With that in mind, she has a sick... (laughs) We got a sick old cat. Don't make me think about that anymore. A disgusting apartment. She's always Mm -hmm. drunk and she has no money. Yep. What do you do in that situation? (laughs) I'll tell you what she does. She starts writing for Soap Opera Digest about old-time radio soaps. (laughs) (laughs) What? I had no idea. Well, the pay wasn't great, but she found it interesting. And she was once again researching at the Library of Performing Arts when she was giving letters between Fanny Bryce, famous American comedian and performer, and Elaine Carrington, who was a soap writer. Okay. So this is her first encounter with the with memorabilia letters. She has a thought that would change her life forever. A cat thought. Her a cat what? Ger- a cat thought. A cat, a cat thought. <laughs> yeah, I'm calling okay. it. She has a cat thought. Her cat her <laughs> What cat- what does that mean? <laughs> her cat. Let me talk. <laughs> This can't be a situation. Mm. Her cat, Jersey, that was causing flies, finally passes away. And she's able to scrub that bed area. And bye-bye went the flies. But it wasn't long before a new cat named Doris strolls on in with her own health problems. Okay. Now, Lee has enough money for the vet visit, but not for the tests for poor Doris. But in her past, she sold a letter from 
Catherine Hepburn to her to herself to Lee to a woman named Anna Sasenko for $250. So she realizes she's sold a letter in the past for this amount of money. Okay. Now the woman she sells it to is a songer a songwriter and an okay. impresario. <laughs> Moulin Rouge, if you remember that word. Oh, That's why you know I that don't... word. But you know it. It's in your brain somewhere. I forgot it. That's yeah. okay. But anyway, she she owned this woman that she sold it to owned a theatrical memorabilia gallery, which is why she cared about the letter because it was between Catherine Hepburn and Lee. So, got it. There's that. That's why she cared about the letter. So she quote stole three Fanny three Fanny Bryce letters, slid them into a small notebook, ducked into the ladies' room, and planted them gingerly between my socks and my kids. End quote. So she has letters in her shoes at the Library of Performing Arts in New York City. Okay. Yeah. They were just in a book randomly. Oh. Oh, is that what you said? No, she was given them when she was researching. Oh. But it might have been in a book. She, in the movie, she randomly finds them in a random book. And I was like, this feels weird that she just found these random Fanny Bryce letters in a Fanny Bryce book. Like, what? What? Yeah, I don't remember hearing that part. But And then she does that. She, like, slips them into her shoe. And I'm like, girl, calm down. Well, she has to pass inspection from the security guards. Oh, the security guards? Mm-hmm. Oh. But she makes it through. And she says she felt no guilt about the letters. There was a whole world out there full of collectors that were interested in Fanny Bryce. So she got the letters, she got her money, and got her cat the care it needed. Okay. So imagine your life of crime starts because of your cat needing medicine. She's got to do what she's got to do. I guess. So she (laughs) sold the three letters. Okay. She's on a slippery slope, and there's no stopping her. Right, because you, there, it's not a infinite resource. You can't just keep having famous people letters. Yeah, right. You would think. But not only is she stealing the letters, she's creating fake people to cover her tracks when it comes to where she got them from when she's selling them to people, mm. how, how she came across them. She can't be like, slipped in my kid at the library. Right. Yeah, she keeps saying, like, my cousin is Sydney. a collector. My yeah. cousin Sydney. She that was the answer exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep, a collector that gave her a whole inventory of letters that she was allowed to do whatever she wanted with autographed letters. Yeah. So typed out, hand signed. And she like made a whole backstory for this man and said he like always wore car- a carnation in his lapel and he had like a, a love for huge personalities and celebrity. And it was just this figment of her imagination. And she talks about him being one of the most creative parts of her. Scam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Now, she never uses yeah. the word scam. So I, I'm, I love that you said that. I mean, it is. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's a scam. She's. We haven't super got to it, but she's about to forge all these letters. Yeah. So she sells those three... Fanny Bryce letters for $40 each to a woman named Naomi Hample. She's the daughter. The na- the, sorry, the Fanny yeah. Bryce letters were legit, right? Yes, they were legit. Correct. Okay. Yes. So okay. she 
she sells lip to Naomi, and Naomi is the daughter of Lewis Cohen, who's the founder of Argosy Bookstore. I don't know if that's ever... Never heard of it. Okay. So Naomi told her she would pay more for better content in the letters. Right. So Lee went back to the library for more letters. Oh, wait. Naomi. Mm -hmm. She's a big part in the movie. She is. Yes. Yes. Maybe a love interest or two. She (laughs) is. She has a love interest or two or she is. Yeah, her and Lee. Her and Lee go on a date, baby. Oh. Okay, that was not expressed. Interesting. I can imagine. I can imagine that. Well, you'll you'll find out why it's surprising to me, though, later. Okay. That that it was not expressed, if it was, like, a real thing. So, Naomi's like, jazz it up. Give me more. So, not jazz. She doesn't say jazz it up. Sorry. Naomi's like, better content. I'll pay more. And Lee goes back to the library, gets more letters takes them back to her apartment and decides to jazz them up a bit so she added these postscripts for example in one of fanny bryce's letters she adds an ex's name to a letter thinking it would add 20 to 30 dollars worth of value just like throwing it in there in the postscript p.s i feel this way about this person and then she so she would start editing the letters by taking a clean copy, and she would send a copy to her mom in Florida as well, just to have the originals there. But for some reason, her Bryce letters never made it. So then she goes on this like goose chase trying to find her original Bryce letters mm-hmm. okay. until she finds a man named Swampy. What? And Swampy says, I have a letter. And he reads it over the phone to Lee, and then she finds out it was not actually uh, an original. It was one that she had written, and she ends up having to pay $595 to get that back. To, like, have it as a template. Oh. She needed it. She need, She ran out of her, like, Fanny Bryce templates. And needed it back. Okay. So off the bat, she's already paying someone else $595 for one of her, for own, her letters. own letter bag? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then she also was doing a lot of copying of a woman named Louise Brooks, her letters. I don't know if that was a name she ever used in the movie. Um, no, I don't, I don't remember that one. But either way, she would do, she would copy this woman's signature by using what she says is weathered paper. So like not fresh, brand new paper on top of mm-hmm. the original paper. And then she would trace over it again and again, but it was shaky and she like couldn't really see what was happening until she quote invented the light box or I thought I did. Quote. <laughs> yeah. So with she a would computer lay, or something with a She would lay a TV on the floor as like a backlighting oh, yeah. source. And then she put like, a blank canvas on top of the copy of the original copy and then trace over it a bunch of times and trace those lines until it was what she says was like a tune played over the melody. So it wasn't exactly perfect, but it matches enough. I think she said that exact line. And Louise Brooks was someone who was old and sick and like a drinker. So it was okay if it was shaky and not perfect. Okay. The other thing I realized as I was listening, I was like, oh, yeah, these are typed out letters. So only 
the only handwritten part is really the signatures or anything she adds. But the main, the fact that I'm like, she spent so much time on just a signature for some people. And she says for some people, she could just do half their last names. Like instead of this woman, Edna Farber, she could just sign Farb and people would believe it was a real signature. Mm. Like the minimum work. Yeah. Well, it's probably, I mean, I bet you the real person actually signed her letters like that sometimes. That's why she could get away. Well, with right. That. Exactly. But I'm saying if all she has to trace is that. Yeah. The signature was like yeah. the important part. Cause that's what all the authenticators yeah. were like. Microscope and exactly. looking at. And so from April of 1990 until the summer of 1991, she did this to a multitude of letters, this jazzing up of them, but only the Louise Brooks letters were actual or were from actual viable letters. So she would use different like autobiographies and books and that, these kinds of things to pull from to make these mm. stories up to kind of enhance these things for people. But Louise Brooks actually came from mostly viable letters that were real as opposed to okay. Lee's yeah so it is in one of her dorothy letters that she uses the phrase can you ever forgive me she also dives really deep into a person named noel coward in his personal Mm -hmm. life and diary entries specifically but in all of her hundreds of letters she's forging and editing and faking no one is checking with pada which is the professional autograph dealers association which was around back then and at this company they strive to promote high standards of business ethics professionalism and service in the trade pada aims to establish a marketplace for autographs in which collectors can buy and sell with confidence and get accurate information and informed advice so there's this company that's existed this whole time that could be involved in this and pretty much stop lee in her tracks but no one is (laughs) using it (laughs) which doesn't make any sense to me because i'm like if i'm gonna buy a piece of paper for the sole reason of like a famous person did this or someone i admire wrote this i want it to at least be real exactly and so there was a situation i don't want it written by lee is (laughs) real boy you and a lot of people would agree with that statement 400 people i'd say so (laughs) there was a situation where Lee was almost caught before she truly was with um, the letters oh. of a person named Lillian Hellman. So she used paper that actually had watermarks on it and the watermarks are dateable. The paper she used would oh. had been created after the date in which she wrote the paper. So it got sent back to her from the collector, which I'm like, how did that? But no one reported it. They just were like, these right. aren't real, send you back. Mm-hmm. So that's confusing to me. But only one other dealer had ever even like held up one of her papers to the light. And it happened to also be a Hellman letter. But that dealer was like, yeah, whatever. This person probably, Lillian probably needed to use an ex- a different cop. Like just they'll rationalize it away. Yeah. Even if they can see yeah. a problem. And she says there's even this person named uh, Charles Hamilton Jr., who was a handwriting expert, 
offered her $40 for one of her Lillian Hellman letters, but she didn't take it because it was like very low priced. But she says, I thought it was perhaps a trap, but he couldn't catch me in it. I'm like, what do you, you thought it was a trap? He was going to pay you less money for a letter than you wanted? What? Well, I, that exact kind of thing happens. She like gets worried about this one person and then she avoids selling to him because she's like, then he can have it. And legally, like, I sold to him so he can, like, report it if it's... Right, if it's, so it's like she's aware of he these He can prove things. it's fake. It's like she's very aware that what she's doing is not real. Like, I'm just like... Yeah. There's a weird level of... I don't know it's a weird is. level of doing something so very legal for not enough payoff. Yeah. She's selling them for, like, three and four hundred dollars. I'm like... Right. You're gonna go to federal prison. Well, you would think that would be the case. So she is continuing with her schemes and she gets closest to like the dealers in New York City because that's where she mostly is Mm -hmm. working out of. And she says she has like an older 60 year old friend who lived in Soho who would resell her best letters. She gave him a copy of her own autobiography and signed it Margaret Mitchell, which I was like, why would you do that? weird but he told her this dealer um that he thought there might be someone on to her reading a dorothy parker letter he said to her quote you're good but you're not this good end quote and lee just stayed silent and then eventually the dealer took her out to dinner another time and um as a thank sorry the dealer took her out to dinner as a thank you but also seemingly to warn her that california dealers were wary of her and her Noel Coward, letter, Coward letters, because Coward was a gay man who lived when it wasn't okay to be gay. It was illegal. So mm-hmm. his diary entries and how personal she had edited them and made them to be revealing of his sexuality and his like desires and stuff made it so that they the, the dealers were like, this wouldn't be true. He would never have written this down at yeah. this period yeah. in time. They had one of the dealers who had a buyer who was friends with Noel Coward yep. when he was alive. Yep. And he was like, he would never have been this personal and explicit with his sexuality in these letters. Exactly. And that's what hap- That's exactly what happened. Um, and so it's now, it's even though Lee at this dinner doesn't like confirm or deny to her dealer friend that this is true she's faking letters or whatever it's too late uh there was like a west coast dealer who took her letters booth to booth at a memorabilia show saying fake 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 there was a radio host named paul harvey who was who spoke about uh, a shake-up that would be happening in the autograph field soon and lee assumed it was about her and then this woman cindy adams wrote an article claiming fake dorothy parker notes were out there in existence as well, which were Lee's. So all these mm-hmm. different media sources she's saying are kind of surrounding her with that. Um, and then she's on her way to send out more fake letters when she gets a message from a man named Alan um, Weiner, who was one of her biggest Dorothy Parker letter purchasers. Um, okay. And he let her know he'd been called to testify against her in front of the New York grand jury. Um, but if she paid him $5,000, he said he wouldn't do it 
testify against her. And she said, great, I have money on the way. I'll send it to you. Just give me time. She didn't have money. Yeah, she gets that little threat from one of her collectors, too, in the movie. And this is where a man named Jack Hawk comes into the picture. Sure. You're telling me. Okay. Jack Hawk's been around since day one for me. Well, he writes to Lee from Pennsylvania at this time because they had stopped being friends a while ago. Um, She had given him permission to go around and like try and get an option for one of her best-selling books. I don't really know what that means, an option. Okay. But me either. She said that after that contract expired, he forged her name on another contract to keep mm. going to find more to do like op- continue optioning the book and she was like ironically I was pissed about that cuz he forged my name. That made me angry, so we had a falling out <laughs> literally. Oh, well, she's so stupid. So he um, had contracted AIDS while he was in prison. Okay. And they uh, released him because of that. Mm-hmm. Because he was dying in the, pro- like, kind of, not horribly, but also at that time, I don't, well, it's the 90s. Yeah, the 90s, I don't, I guess I'm not totally, I don't know a lot about the prison system at that time, but right. that was still a huge AIDS crisis. Um, yeah, what's the word? Stigma. It was okay. very stigmatized. So right, right. he might have been just released because they didn't want him with other people. Oh, uh, sure. I understand. He ends up getting lunch with Lee, and at lunch, she explains her crimes to him. She tells him that she needs $5,000, and so she has a plan. She would take a tour of major university libraries, replicate various letters and collections, and replace them with forged copies. Jack would then sell the stolen originals to the people in New York that Lee couldn't face anymore, and Jack Jack would get 50% minus any expenses that Lee needed in the letter process. Jack immediately said yes. Yep, they do that exact plan. But you're saying at this time he's, like, been around the whole time. Yeah, I don't really... Does he ever go to uh, jail? I don't know why. He is around since day one, almost. They meet at a bar. He does... I don't think he goes to jail, but he is homeless. Mm -hmm. And he... They just drink together and pull pranks together on the bookman. They clean her apartment together. And then she's doing all these illegal selling or forgeries right he doesn't really know how she's making money but eventually she loops him in when she can't sell anymore because her name is going around as selling all these forgeries okay so he's kind of always her like kooky little friend and then finally he gets roped in kind Mm -hmm. of just as you said got it okay that makes sense so In order to get into these libraries, she has to have some type of contract to present. You can't just waltz in and be like, take me to this restricted area. I'm a person with just curiosity. You have to have some type of reason. So she alters the contract that she used to be able to do research on Estee Lauder to get into the libraries, saying that she was researching authors with alcoholism. Yeah, she yeah she mm-hmm. used that in the movie. I was like, how ironic. So she for, she like alters her own contract. She's such a forger. What yeah. a little forger. So she got 
She got into both the Columbia University Division of Rare Books and Manuscripts and the New York Public Library Berg Collection of English and American Literature. (laughs) Okay. Her first few visits were just security recon. And librarians were her (laughs) biggest obstacles. Oh my god. Imagine doing security recon at a library. I, I know. So she went around to other libraries would copy two or three letters word for word, comma for comma, indent for indent, and then would have to be, would be like so nervous because she would then be tracing the signature. And that is the place, that's the biggest giveaway if you're caught, if someone walks by and sees you literally tracing over a signature. Right. They're, they're like, like why would you, you ever be needing this? Exactly. So <laughs> she, she would do that as fast as she could and then take it home, replicate the letter at home, better and like for real or at a hotel if she was not in new york using her backlighting she'd return to and then she'd return to the library request the same box and exchange the letters putting the real one in her shoe and leaving the fake one yep but once at princeton she came close to being caught after having done her switch she thought that security was like kind of relaxed and not as worried about her as some other places had been so she didn't put the paper in her shoe like she normally did to leave she just left it in her paper she was holding um and as she was leaving the librarian wanted to check her papers before she left so she came up with a lie as quick as she could and was like oh i forgot to put the dates on each of these letters and then walked back to her table and the librarian had to bring the box back out. I was like, okay. So she switched all the letters back so that the fake ones were back with her and then pretended to do 30 more minutes of work of like putting dates on papers. And then she put the fake letters into some random book and exited again without any papers and without a problem. So she's like, okay, real ones back in the box. 30 minutes of fake work. Let me put these fake letters in a book. <laughs> Gotta go. Uh, they show us one of those. Uh, okay. Like library mission yeah. impossible adventures where she's stealing the <laughs> Not f- documents. Library mission impossible. Just, <laughs> just, okay. I would watch that. Honestly, same. Um, like repelling from the ceiling through the book stacks. Yes. They don't show us the one that goes wrong. They just show us a a normal one where she's scared and looks up at the security guard and shoving the documents in her shoe. Got it. Okay. So in addition, wait, what were you going to say? You have something on your mind. I can see it. (laughs) And I just keep going back to like, and all of this to sell these documents for maximum I saw her get was like $600. Yeah. True. I'm like, what is she, what are you doing? There's better keep, scams to scam and, and keep get that more money. cat in the bag too. Maximum six hundred. Keep that cat in the bag for later. <laughs> okay. So, so I can't even remember all my cats in my bags. It was just that. What was my first one? one? The literal. Yeah. Cat. What was the other one? Oh. The literal cat. Okay. <laughs> okay. Twelve years old. <laughs> so she makes twenty-one. Or twenty-one. She made her way. <laughs> She made her way through Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn State, Syracuse, and Cornell, and Hargrit Rare Book and Manuscript Library, 
where Margaret Mitchell, if you remember that name, who she signed her name Mm -hmm. as Margaret Mitchell once, where this woman's letters can be found. Margaret Mitchell is the author of Gone with the Wind. I forgot. Oh. Yeah. Got it. But the clerk at this library was like, Margaret didn't have a drinking problem. Why do you need to research her? Oh, yeah. So Lee goes, well, I'm also researching those who avoided drinking, managed to avoid drinking. <laughs> I was like, okay, so every everyone now? So everyone. Either those that do or didn't. <laughs> Which so easy. you're writing about all authors. Yeah. So she, like, <laughs> she's got this scheme going with Jack. We have piles and piles of letters. Just like all these different letters that she has labeled that she could sell and assign. Forgeries left and forge. She has so many typewriters that she has bought at this point. So many typewriters. She has a storage locker full of these things. Lee would label each letter stack by person assigned and Jack would invent stories of his own of how he got the letters. So he started doing his own creation of this. And he would Mm -hmm. even use a price book on... He, using a price book on autographs, Jack came up with his own price requests as well. So the person I had mentioned before, Alan Weiner, was one of Jack's biggest clients, and he was spending very large sums of money. But Jack had started trying to pocket more and playing a little bit dumb with Lee. Okay, yeah. So so Lee was like, okay, listen up, cowboy. This is what's going to happen. You're going to go to the location to do the deal. We're going to meet at this bar, cafe, hotel, any place close by to where he's doing the deal after it's done. And then we're going to go to my house to count together because I can't trust you. Yeah. So now this operation is not just a deal and a go home. This operation is a deal, meet here, go home together, count. We're really developing... A trail here of how this plan true <laughs> so many places to get seen but she really didn't trust him exactly but at the same time jack was also starting to suffer more and more from some like aids related illnesses so now she's doing a little bit more of taking care of him and trying to help him and she's almost got another sick cat she'll look <laughs> after not to compare a yeah, with aids to a cat but but yeah, that's kind of true. She, her whole thing was taking care of the cat at the beginning, and then he came in, and then she also started t- taking care of him. Yeah, exactly. So they're doing their thing until the summer of 1992, when Lee says she starts to feel something is off. A dealer puts off a meeting with her in favor of like seeing a sister or something, and she's like, "Well, dealers always put me first. They never cancel because of plans. Like they want to get these letters. That's weird." Mm. And then they never rescheduled with her. So on a separate occasion, Lee is waiting for Jack. Most deals take less than 10 minutes. Like I said, they would meet, then go to her house, and they would count. But this time, Lee waited for more than an hour before she decided to head home to see if Jack had gone straight there instead. As she's walking down the street, she hears someone yelling her name, and she's never heard or seen this person before. It turns out that they're FBI agents, and they want to talk to her. Oh. Uh, Jack had been caught going to execute the deal and became a, and became a cooperating witness. He listed yeah. 
various names of uh, colleges to the agents who listed them to Lee when they got to her, basically being like, we have this information, don't deny it. Mm-hmm. She ends up being able to walk away from them. She goes and buys a bottle of scotch to go, or she buys a bottle of scotch, goes home and cuts up tons of paper that she had used for research and starts destroying as much yeah. evidence as possible. Yeah, in the movie they were like, they kind of come to arrest her, it feels like, and she goes, well, are you going to arrest me? And they goes, well, technically we can't, we don't have the arrest warrant yet, but we just came to let you know that you are a, a person of interest or whatever and not to destroy any documents related to this case. And then it clip, it like cuts to her running back into her house and shredding everything so yeah throwing she does everything that. in the garbage she goes yeah. to the storage locker she grabs ev- all of her typewriters and she ends up dumping each one in a trash can mm-hmm. on amsterdam avenue and yeah, she's like, she's like running down the street yeah. and then she's like I'm, that's it i'm flying to fort lauderdale to my parents i'm going to disappear into the retirement community no one will find me whoa so the dealers had ended up doing her in a dealer had become suspicious of letters sold to him by Jack that had been from the University of Columbia. July 17th, 1992, the FBI agents I had mentioned before were in a dealer's office when Jack calls to say they had an Edna St. Vincent Mole and a Jer- Jerome Kern and a Thomas Wolfe, all these letters available for this dealer. Mm. Um, they set up a meeting for July 21st where the dealer would wear a wire and Jack was followed to the bar at which he met Lee and then seen boarding the train together. So they watched all of this happen first and had a wire okay. meeting. Um, after that, they were able to get him the next meeting set up, get Jack. But uh, every trip to the library that Lee had done, she had to... You're confused. Did I say something confusing? I was confused about that, but what happened... Basically, on a train. I was saying when they set up a meeting for July 21st, the one where like the dealer wore the wire, they also followed Jack to the meeting place and then to the train with Lee. So they like got this information once before. And then that's that's separate from the time where they approached Lee. Okay. so like they first like watched a full situation pan out and then got Jack, got him to be a witness and then confronted Lee on the street. And then, in addition to that, every trip that Lee had done to the library, she had to give her personal information in order to get the documents. And she apparently never thought of giving a false personality and didn't know how to get papers for that anyway. I'm like, you Mm -hmm. are a forger, and you couldn't make up... Well, and then in addition to that, the money that she ended up paying to Alan Weiner, the $5,000 he wanted, was actually coming from himself, because... He would pay Jack for fake letters, and then she would take that money from Jack and give it to Alan. He didn't mm. know it was Lee behind Jack. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it was like this big circle of money happening. Did that happen in the movie as well? Is Alan the dealer that's, like, threatening them? Yes. Um, The threat happens, but then they kind of ignore him. Mm, okay. So he's Got never it. really a character. Okay. But he is played by Melissa McCarthy's real-life husband. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, shit. I love when that happens. 
But you had mentioned that in that same interaction with the FBI agents on the street that they were like, don't destroy any evidence. And then immediately she does, which is interesting. In her memoir, she says she goes home. And then at 6 p.m. the same day that she met the FBI agents, they come to her house and tell her after she's already destroyed the evidence that she can't destroy any evidence. (laughs) So she Uh says it. She makes it seem as if it was like a they should have told me. After. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they say she needs to appear before a grand jury on July 31st, July 31st. We've now been subpoenaed. It's happening. The end is near. According to her, she's owed a highly talented pro bono lawyer because she worked on civil rights in the past and she was a writer for big magazines. So she, so she went to Flo Kennedy and, and asked for her to be her lawyer. And Flo said, no, that's not happening, ma'am. Okay. Um, and then she got another lawyer before that who was like, great, this will be perfect for both of us. A big media ride. But we should say there's mitigating circumstances. Are you going through menopause? And she's like, yes. And they're like, perfect. You are having temporary estrogen deprivation. And that made you go crazy. She was like, okay, that's not going to work. So finally, she gets a lawyer named Lloyd Epstein, who doesn't consider any option but guilty for her. Which I'm curious if that was, if that's real. She makes it seem like, of course I would have to plead guilty. But she also says that her crime was, like, sexy to lawyers. So she was never arrested. She never had to do a perp walk. There were no drugs. There was no alcohol. I mean, there was alcohol-related eventually, but not in the immediate mm-hmm. situation with her. Um, yeah. She And overall, she, like, was treated very well in the system. But the, at the whole time, she's, like, freaking out thinking about jail, spiraling about it. She says during the process, she ends, she ends up drunken and unable to sleep and going to the store and she steals uh, $3.95 of anti-allergy medication and she winds up handcuffed and in a police car. Whoa. And she also corrects the police officer's grammar. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She's like, they put me in a cell for a few hours and it was horrible. And then I was released. But the store that she stole from never showed up to court. So the charges were dropped which was good for her because at this time she's still waiting for her other court date where she's forged all these letters. She is walking past a shop with autographed letters and she goes inside and the clerk pulls out a Dorothy Parker letter and it was one of the forgeries that Lee had done for a different dealer for like $100 is how much she sold it for about. But it's priced at $2,500. Right next to a second one, also priced at $2,500. Of her own? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that yeah. happened in the movie towards the very end. She walks by a shop and they have it in the window, one of her fake letters. It also has a certificate of authenticity. Really? Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she's pissed. She's like, I'm on trial for, for having done this and, and this is going for $2,500. And she can't let it go. She ends up writing another letter as Dorothy Parker 
on Dorothy mm-hmm. Parker stationery, sends it to the dealer and tells uh, basically is like, you shouldn't be selling this. Do you know how much Lee Israel got for this? You're making a fortune. And then the dealer takes those letters out pretty quickly once he realizes that it is also a forgery. Yeah, she does it, and then it shows the shop owner. It's like the very last scene of the movie. She, Mm. The shop owner reads it and goes to grab the letter out of the window of the front of the shop, and then he thinks about it and then puts the letter back. (gasps) I love that. Kind of. So he's like, oh, it is still a forgery. I still can make a buck on this, whatever. Exactly. She volunteered at the Museum of Natural History in the meantime to prepare a a new manual for their guides while her lawyer did his best to get like the numbers lower on her sentencing. And he was able to emphasize that Jack was not like a pawn or a follower in this situation because he was naming his own prices and he was making his own connections. And that was part of the reason that part of her sentencing got lowered as well. Because they couldn't pin her as the, like, mastermind. Okay. Um, the day of her hearing, she missed it. She missed her subway stop. Then she got on the wrong train. <laughs> Again, <laughs> when she tried to correct her mistake. So when she finally got to court, she's, like, so sweaty and barely on time. Um, and completely alone, except for her attorney. She lies to the judge about her alcohol use, but maintains a guilty plea. And Judge Sweet gives her five years on probation and six months house arrest. Five years on probation, six months house arrest. Yep, that's exactly what the movie says. So she is on probation for a while. (laughs) Um, She says that Jack got three years of probation. He ended up dying at 47 years old in 1994. And she says she only saw him one time after court. They were both at a medical clinic, but he didn't see her. They couldn't actually interact. That was part of the him confessing as well. They could no longer be in contact with each other. And Lee says she suffered and paid by being barred from the library she stole from. Yeah. Okay. How so? <laughs> exactly. There's an archivist group called Ex Libris that sent out like an all pull an all points bulletin about Lee and her crimes. So when she tried to return to the lower level of the unsecured Lincoln center library, she was escorted out by a guard. Yeah. That'll happen when you, when you screw with the library, the librarians are not happy about it. <laughs> They're not. So she cooperated with the FBI and apparently returned all the real versions of the letters to the original homes. So those librarians can rest easy but she wrote somewhere near 100,000 words over two years in fake letters. She says wow. it was her best work and that most dealers came out ahead. In her probationary period, she got a job copy editing magazines at Scholastic for six years. She had a salary and benefits that included pet insurance for her current cat. And that is the story of Miss Lee Israel's Can You Ever Forgive Me? What do you have to say about that? That is a bigger story, I felt, than the movie told me. Hmm. Well, yeah, because the stories, the movie starts at, like, she's already in a life of crime. Or not crime, but difficult. Not really crime. She starts with getting fired from that, like, legal assistant job or whatever Mm. 
Yeah, are we, is this, what do I think, based by Sir BS? Yeah, what do you think, based by Sir BS? I feel like it's definitely in the biased category. Mm. Where there are some things that are really, really spot on, like almost word for word that you were telling me. But then other parts where like Jack is kind of not in it the entire time, but he was, it was him and Melissa McCarthy the whole time, basically. Which makes sense from a movie standpoint. It's far more interesting to watch two people interact than to watch one woman in an apartment by herself with her cat. Right, true. Writing letters. He was there <laughs> for a little Not even fun. writing the letters. Copy. Copying. Yeah. Can Copying we also, letters. like, this crime could never happen again. This is such a time specific, like, period of time before, like, the amount of cameras that are everywhere now and the amount of, like, detect data sensitivity thing. Just, like, well and it's like what would we even forge like this would be the same as like sharing screenshots of like celebrities texts that would be what it is like which people already these were just random notes everyone is like the amount of for like you can copy paste things on screenshots everyone can be lee israel yeah for real um so i definitely say biased yeah for sure we haven't had a good middle one in a while. It was a good movie. She really is a great actress, Melissa McCarthy. She does a really good job, and yet at the same time, you don't root for her at all. I'm like, okay, that's this what woman I was is just about. like, uh, no, she was just like dirty and lot and drunk and not nice to anyone, and lying and forging, doing all this work for like four hundred dollars. It was weird. For such little money. Right. Like, and I guess I should have realized that when she was like in the high five figures and we should have known. <laughs> and it was like $50,000. $50, maybe 55000 Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well. Little biased. There we have it. Biased. We have it. Well, is there something you need to tell me? confession if you will um yes but before we get to next week's episode oh yes let's i wanted to ask the listeners if they had any suggestions for movies because there are a huge like plethora of based on true story movies to choose from i know like (laughs) one genre i'll be honest that i'm scared to enter is like war genre Okay, yeah, I would be scared to do that, too, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, next week, we're going to kind of go there a little bit. We are? We are? <laughs> yeah. Oh, if you have suggestions, you can send them to our Instagram at BasedBySRBS. Forgot yeah. to say that. Ding, ding. Um, so next week, the movie is going to be... <laughs> yeah? It's called Argo. 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 Not I heard, it, I heard of it Fargo. when it first came out. Not Fargo. Not Fargo. <laughs> not Fargo. Argo, not Fargo. Argo. Okay. Yeah. Never. I kind of heard about heard it when it. it first came out, but I don't didn't really know what it was about. It has an interesting plot, so get ready to learn a lot next week. I'll just say that. I love to learn. <laughs> well, okay. look at us go. I learned a lot about as a scammer today. Yeah, and I thought that the, giving you more of her backstory would make her more likable, but I don't think it did. 
No, she's not likable at all. No. Sorry, Lee. May you rest in peace. Sorry, Lee. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Won't see you next week, Lee. No, Lee, won't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, goodbye for real. Bye, Doris. Who's that? That's her cat. Oh. I thought her cat was named Jersey. That's the first. That's the 1221. (laughs) Okay, bye. Her second book was on a woman named Dorothy Kilgallen, and it was just called Kilgallen. Okay. She was an American crime no reporter. to all the people named Gallen. Sorry, that was a No, bad her joke. last name was Kilgallen. Yeah, I know, and I was, oh. yeah, it was stupid, because I was like, kill all the Gallens. No offense to all the Gallens. I can't with okay. you. I know. I'm going to cut that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry.